Father, we thank you for that night, God, just that you came down, God, so that we could have life. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Father, for your cross. God, we love you. We praise you. It's in your name. Amen. Last Sunday, we looked at the book of Micah with the question, why did God have to come? And we saw the answer to that in verses in chapters 1 through 5. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, that God is coming. Look, the Lord is coming. And we saw in chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. And so, because of the moral decline, the religious decline, the political hypocrisy, uh, the business uh, uh, deceit and the business uh, underhandedness that was going on with the, the um, leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders, and the business leaders. People were pawns. People were being hurt. The sheep were being fleeced. God had had enough, and he said, I am coming. And we understand that he came in Jesus Christ. The, the, the gospel is founded in the fact that before the foundation of the world, God had this plan in mind, and that plan was that, that at the appropriate time, Galatians 4 tells us it was the fullness of times, it was the right time that God would relieve people from their burden. He would give them answers. He would give them an understanding of what it truly means to love God, to hear from God, to know God, uh, to be forgiven, and to see love and action through uh, God emptying himself and, and Jesus coming into the world to lead us and guide us. And so here today, uh, as a response to what Jesus did for us, being born in Bethlehem, uh, growing and teaching and guiding and, and, and instructing and, and putting together the group of disciples to take this plan that God has for the whole world, dying on the cross, being raised from the grave and ascending to heaven, what is our response to this gift of God to us in Jesus? And so today we're going to begin and look at that question, what does the Lord want from us? Or uh, what does God want from us at Christmas? What could be the best response that we can give God based on all that he has done for us? And so we'll begin in chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Pause right there for a moment. Just be in, you know, just, just think about your life. Think about your ears. Think about your heart. Listen to what the Lord is saying. Boy, that's crucial. That's crucial to not miss it. That's crucial to be open. That's crucial to be receptive to what God's word is for us. Listen to what the Lord is saying. A good question for us to ask ourselves is that, are we hearing the Lord speak? Today, are we open to hear the word of the Lord? Are, we, are our ears open? Is our heart open? Is our mind open to hear a word from the Lord? And so Micah begins, listen to what the Lord is saying. And then... Uh, Micah shares 
the, the, the case that God has against his people. Stand up and state your case against me. Let the mountains and the hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. And so last week we went through the book of Micah and we discussed what those charges were. The case that God had against the nation of Israel, Judah, Samaria, Jerusalem, and the people of God. And now he asked some questions to get their heart. He asked some questions to stir in within them, you know, this, this uh, ability to process this information, you know, to come clean, to come to terms with things, to, to get down to the nitty gritty. You know, the shoe leather hits the road. And so the Lord says to his people, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? That's really practical, isn't it? That's common sense. That's getting right down to it. That's a heart-to-heart -heart conversation between God and people. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? English Standard Version says, What have I done to make you weary of me? What's gone on here? How come you've drifted so far? How come you're blaming me? How come you're tired of me, God says to his people? I mean, what's going on? Now, he's speaking to a people that no longer respect him. He's speaking to a people that no longer worship him. He's speaking to a people, as Isaiah says, their, their heart is far from me. They speak of me with their lips, but their heart's not involved. There's not a connection between my people and me. There's not worship. There's rituals. There's not worship. There's just going through the motions. There's not hearing me speak. They're not open to my words anymore. They're not... They're not responsive to my words. They just kind of let it go in one end and out the other. They don't really pay attention to me. They've grown tired of me. They sit around and they complain. They sit around and they gripe. They sit around and bring charges against me. I haven't done enough. I haven't done according to their plans. And so God says to his people, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I mistreated you? What have I done to make you tired of me? And he says, answer me. He wants to know why his people have, have lived without any concern for him anymore. And he, he gives them his case. He gives them information that he wants them to hear that will make them rethink why they have grown weary of God. And he begins with the release of the slaves from Egypt. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. In other words, isn't that enough? Isn't that quite spectacular what I did for you? Just consider where you would be if not for me. Consider that you would still be slaves in Egypt under a ruthless Pharaoh, just, just having a, a difficult life, making the bricks, building the buildings, building the highways, building the bridges. Just, just think about not a nation for yourself, not a place of milk and honey, not a place where you can develop your own life 
and you can make money for yourself, that you can work, that you can plant vineyards, that you can grow farms, that you can enjoy your children's weddings and, and the births of grandchildren and just enjoy the good life. If it weren't for me, you would still be in bondage. Now, spiritual speaking, we could answer that question, couldn't we? If it weren't for God, we would still be in the bondage of sin. If it weren't for God, we would be slaves. We would be indentured servants. We would have sin that, that we do not have the ability to forgive, to overcome, to make up for. And if God hadn't sent His Son Jesus into the world, then we would be trapped in, in sin, trying our very best to be as good as we could be, but always falling short and never ever able to measure up and pay for the sins that we've committed. So God says, you'd be slaves. What do you mean you're tired of me? Don't you, just re don't you remember what I did for you to release you from the mighty Egyptians? and how I opened the Red Sea, how I provided manna and, and quail in the wilderness, how I directed your paths and brought you to the land that flows with milk and honey. And he said, I sent you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you along the way. I put leaders in your lives. I put people in your lives that would hear me. The reason why I chose Moses, God is saying here, is because he would listen to me. He wasn't a perfect man, didn't have it all together, but he was the best guy for this position. Not only would he listen to me, but he had the courage to follow through and do the things that I asked him to do. This is what I've done for you. And so God says, listen to me. Why are you tired of me? If you are tired of me, look back. Look back and, and count your blessings. Look back and count the number of things that I've done for you. And he says in verse 5, Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed? And how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? Remember the story? Uh, uh, Balaam of Beor is up between the Euphrates River, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, and the, the Israelites come marching into Moab. And King Balak, he sees them. There are bunches of them. There's a lot of these Israelites. I mean, they just start showing up. And they come in this long caravan of people through the desert. And here they are, and, and they're impeding on his land. And, and King Balak says, man, send for Balaam. He'll come, and everyone that Balaam curses are cursed, and everyone that he blesses are blessed. Let's send for him and let him come and, and bless the people, curse the people, and we'll be okay. That's what King Balak is counting on. It's a great story. You need to read that this afternoon and, and see Balak's, uh, uh, Balaam's donkey on the bridge when, the old, when he's whipping him three times and the, and the mule turns around and says, why are you beating me? I love that. It's a great deal. The only time I know a mule spoke English to people, not English, but spoke a language to people. And, and it's a qu quite interesting story, but the bottom line is Balaam says, I'll go to the Lord and I'll talk with the Lord and I'll give you my response. And the Lord would not free Balaam to curse the Israelites. And, and God says here, I did that for you. 
Now, God doesn't question whether or not Balaam hears him or not. That's given. That's assumed. That if Balaam curses someone, that's come from the Lord. And so God says, look what I did for you when I, when I brought you into Moab, and there's King Balaam scared to death of you, and he sends for a cursing, and I didn't allow it to happen. I've always been taking care of you. I've always been mindful of your situation. Now, when I, when I, when I think about the story of King Balak and Balaam, son of Beor, coming in and all the, the people of Israel out there in that wilderness, vast expanse, just, just no green, no water, just out there, just completely dependent upon the Lord for just survival. I mean, the only thing they had enough of out there to survive on was air. God had to provide the water. God had to provide the food. There was no other way to, to feed all those people other than God. So it's quite a spectacular miracle. But here's the deal. How many of those Israelites understood God's protection from a cursing from Balaam and King Balak? Nah, that didn't make its way down through the ranks, I don't imagine. And, and just think about all the stuff, all the things, all the provisions that God has made in our lives this past year. Just think about all that God has done that we're not aware of, that we're not mindful of. His grace, His mercy, His protections, His provisions, His meeting our needs. His keeping us from evil. His, when we are devoted to Him, He is devoted to us, and we see that in those unnamed things. And I couldn't help but think that that majority of the Israelites out there in that wilderness just had no clue of all that God has done, and that's like us. Why we get so tired of God, we, lose, we forget all God's done. Why do we become weary with God? Why do we get fed up with God? Why does our devotion lack? Why are we not obedient? Because we're tired of God, right? We've had enough. We don't like what happened here. We don't like what happened here. And if things don't go well in our life, we typically, it's our nature, we blame God. And God says, hey, think about you'd still be slaves in Egypt. And not only that, think about your life would be cursed if not for me. But now your life is not cursed. Your life is full of grace. And he explains it a little more and he says, he gives a third reason why they don't need to be tired of him, why they need to count their blessings, and why they need to be rejoicing to heaven. He says there in that last part of verse 5, and remember your journey from the acacia grove that was out there in Moab to Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was their first place of settlement, of of really beginning to enjoy the peace and the prosperity of the land that flows with milk and honey. Gilgal, the first real settlement they experienced after they left the acacia grove that was out there in the middle of the Moab, and, uh, Moab desert out there. Now, Moabites were just all over the place. Now, do you remember what happened in the acacia grove? Do you remember that uh, the... Uh, promiscuous activity that were taking place, the sexual temptations that took place, and, and, and the uh, unscrupulous acts that the, that the Israelites found themselves in. 
and, and they had sinned against God and they had snubbed him they had turned their nose up at him and says you've done all these or they had forgotten what all God has done and we're going to live the way we want to but God with this group was still gracious and still blessing and led them across the Jordan River through Jericho into Gilgal and established them the work of grace release from bondage protecting every step of the way blessing not curses through Jesus Christ and and here the reminder of the grace of God following through and doing all that God desired to do now it switches gears in verse 6 because God has done all that because he's been faithful to us what can we bring to the Lord what does God want for Christmas because God has been faithful to us what do we give God in return he begins in verse 6 with giving what is wrong in in the answer to the question what can we give God should we bring him burnt offerings should we bow before God most high should we give him offerings of yearling calves so the very first thought that is given well, would God be pleased with us would, would we adequately repay God if we gave better sacrifices if we did better if we did more if we, did, if we were more faithful if we really paid attention to the sacrifices we give better sacrifices yearling calves the prize the best the answer was no then they think well if it's not giving better sacrifices how about more sacrifices how about the amount abundance should we offer him thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of olive oil should we sacrifice more more than we've ever sacrificed for should we do not just better sacrifices but more sacrifices I mean, isn't that kind of the mindset that we have? I mean, I get it. If it says one Tylenol works, two's better, right? And I mean, if two works fine, three's better. Go ahead and get that Tylenol in you, right? I mean, that is kind of our mindset. Surely God would be accepting of us, pleased with us, if for Christmas we not only gave him a better sacrifice, but we gave him more in regard to the sacrifices and then the third step is should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins now whoa that's that's steep that's the ultimate sacrifice would God be more pleased with us if we gave up our firstborn Thank goodness, the answer is no. The answer is no. You don't need to give better. You don't need to give more. You don't need to give your, the ultimate sacrifice for God to love you more, for God to be okay with you, for God to say all is well between me and you. 
Here's what he wants. No, verse 8 says. And by the way, verse 8 is, according to some of the scholars and Old Testament professors and, and historians and experts and so speak, they believe that the greatest verse in all of the Old Testament is Micah 6.8. So you might ought to write down Micah 6.8, put it on your mirror in your bathroom when you're getting ready in the morning. You know, what, however you memorize, however you get things down, this is really crucial, really and crucial then and really crucial for us now to understand this. No. How do we make God happy with this? No. Not more, not better, not the ultimate sacrifice. How do we make God pleased with us? How, how do the people then respond to God? And, and how do they demonstrate that, that they are not tired of God, that they are thankful for what all God has done, that they are honoring Him, they are devoted to Him, they love God? How do we show that we love God? Verse 8 says, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what he's told us that is good. And this is what the Lord requires of you. So if you ever wonder, what does the Lord want from us? Here we go. Do what is right. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. Those are the three things. Become the next Billy Graham? Only if God says to. But if you don't become the next Billy Graham all is well become a missionary somewhere if God says to but if he doesn't give you that assignment all is well just be faithful to what God calls you to do where you are in the three ways that we show that we are faithful according to Micah here in Micah 6 8 is that we are all about justice we are all about mercy and we are humble those three things. Justice. The Old Testament word is misfat. It means that because of God's character, we are a certain way. We treat people right because we know God. Remember the golden rule. Jesus says, do to others as they will do to you. Good. That's a good thing to think about. How would you want to be treated in a situation? How would you want people to respond to you? That's a good frame to begin with, good frame of mindset to begin with. Now, because we know God, and because we know that God is a God of justice, and we are clearly seeing it here in the Scripture, isn't it? The, the people in Micah's day, the people in Jerusalem, the people in Samaria, they had sinned against God. They were not concerned with God. And if they hear God speak, and they hear the call to repent, they hear the call to return to God, these are the three things that are going to be manifested in their life. They are going to be people of justice, and that is just simply treating people right because of God. We don't treat people right because we're going to get something in return. We don't treat people right because it's the best thing that works. We don't treat people right because we can make more money. We don't treat people right because of civil law. We treat people right, and the primary motivation is because of God. Because of God. We don't be involved in injustice simply because of God. And we consider how other people need to be treated, should be treated, and we treat other people the way 
that we believe God has treated us. That means if we are people of justice and we are people that treat people right because we know God, we're going to treat people, we're going to forgive people, we're going to love people, we're going to have grace for people. Love is going to cover a multitude of sins with people. We, we, we're not going to treat people differently than God has treated us. And so that's a very beautiful thing. Mercy. This speaks of the way we treat others. Loyal love is the, is the foundational Hebrew meaning for this. Not only is it a loyal love, it's a patient love. Now, it's the word that is sometimes translated in the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, that His mercy endures forever. And so, justice and then mercy. It means loving the unlovely even when they don't love you back. That's mercy. It, it, it talks about we, we, we treat, we're obligated to care for people who don't care for us. You know, Jesus said, look, Jesus said, you know, what, what kind of deal is it if you only love people that love you? That's not revealing my love for people. That's not revealing the true uh, meaning of the word mercy. And mercy is doing to other people as God has done to us. And thank goodness the year 2020 is coming to an end. We only got to endure 10 more days of the calendar 2020, and then the impact of 2020 may be a little longer, but hopefully, Lord willing, it's going to be over soon. Think back to the past 12 months. How has God treated you this year? How has God blessed you? Has God forgiven you? Have you forgiven others? Has God lifted you up when you were down? Then lift others up when they are down. Has God overlooked your faults? Then overlook the faults of others. Mercy is translated in many places, lovely or beautiful. Now, this is a quality that we need to see with the response of loving God, believing God, repenting of our sin, worshiping God, devoted to God, is this, that we live out this life of mercy when our gifts to them, our gift of presence, our gift of tenderness, our gift of gentleness, is, is a gift that makes us beautiful in the lives of others. And, and that's really the meaning of Christmas. That's why God came, to show us what mercy is all about to give us an understanding of justice. I mean, please don't take this wrong, but Christian people are to give hope for the homely, to give some beauty to it. And beauty has nothing to do with physical appearance. Show mercy and people will think you're beautiful, regardless of how you look. That's hope for me. And then humility. The word humility comes from the Hebrew word that means modesty. It also has the application to it of carefully. It's an attitude that's the opposite of pride. Humility is having the right view of ourselves because we have the right view of God. We are, we are humble because we are not full of pride. Now, 
the, the, the correct way to be humble in God's eyes is that God is big and we're small. Not insignificant, not unworthy, not, you know, not a waste. That's pride. When we consider ourselves a loser, a waste, we don't have anything to offer, we are disrespecting God's creation. And we ought to never go there. But when we consider ourselves from God's perspective, small because he is big, that's going down the right road of humility. Humility is God made me, I, be I belong to him, I need to keep that perspective. A humble walk, a humble position. God made me and I belong to him. He is big and I am small and that's how I'm going to walk through life. So, what does God want from you this Christmas? What does he want? We see here, it's not more. We see here, it's not better. We see here, it's not the ultimate sacrifice. God, God has chosen that he would be the giver of the great sacrifice. Not us. But we know that we are right with God, that we are giving God what he wants when the response of that worship is justice, mercy, and humility. That's what God wants from us. That's what he desires. What can we bring to the Lord? What does God want from Christmas? That's what he wants in these difficult days. For us to be his people. For us to shine bright. For us to be objects of beauty to bless other people. Father, we pray today that you will just uh, open up our hearts and minds to your words. Father, help us to hear clearly. Help us to know. Help us to understand your word to us today. We are grateful for the gift of Jesus. We are grateful for the Christmas season. We are grateful, Lord, for the, that most prized, precious gift of yourself. We are so thankful that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And Lord, we are so thankful that your gift to us, we beheld him, we see him, he dwelt among us. We are so thankful for the promise you give us of Emmanuel that you are with us. We are thankful for the promise that you are with us always. We are thankful for the promises you will never forsake us. Lord, we are thankful for the promises that you will lift us up, that you will forgive our sin. We are thankful, Father, for the promise of knowing that your burden is light. And that, Lord, you are always lifting us, Lord. We are thankful that we do not have to measure up. We are thankful, Father, that we are not given an assignment that we can't complete. And, Lord, we're so thankful for the gracious gift of salvation, the gracious gift of grace and forgiveness. Lord, we're so thankful for the Scripture that says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We are so thankful, Father, that your good news says to us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, that you literally demonstrate how much you love us through the death of Christ while we were yet in our sins. We are so thankful, Lord, that we are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. We are not saved by works. We are not saved by anything that we could boast in. And Lord, that you give us salvation. And Lord, that we are your masterpiece and you are working in us 
We are thankful, Lord, that you say that you have begun a good work and you'll complete it. And Lord, this Christmas season, we may be introspective to our own lives and think about our lives. And Lord, we may see that, you know, God, we are, we are so uh, far from where we need to be. But yet we have your grace. I just pray, Lord, that those three things your Holy Spirit would penetrate our heart with. Are we being people of justice? Are we being people of mercy? Are we being a humble people? We are humble because, God, you are big in us and we are small. And we recognize, Lord, that we are limited in what we can do, but, God, you are unlimited. We recognize, Lord, that with us all things are not possible, but, God, with you all things are possible. And so, Lord, we rejoice in you. May you speak to each one. May you speak to your precious people here today. Lift our spirits. Lift our hope. Lift our, our energy to live life to the fullness through you. We are so thankful. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But, Lord, you come to give life abundantly. And we rejoice through the gift of Jesus this Christmas. In his name we pray. Amen.